Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading figures from the world of sustainability and explore the sustainability agenda in marketing and strategy, technology, innovation, investment and finance. We look at the latest thinking, what's working and the future and evolution of the sustainability agenda. I think it would be fair to say, and I've written about this in the past, um, that uh, in the shift from if you like, 19th century economics to 20th century economics, something very remarkable happened, quite surprising in a way though, I understand why it happened, um, which is uh, land, which was the economist's shorthand for all resources as a factory of economic production, disappeared from the models. Um, in moving from classical economics to neoclassical economics, which is the, com- the contemporary frame for uh, most economic analysis. Um, it's a sort of the orthodox starting point. Land dropped out of the analysis and it came to be assumed that the right way of thinking about the world is one of essentially constant returns to scale with the only relevant factors of production being capital and a labor uh, and ideas, technical progress. One way of doing, thinking about this will be to say, well, we should compute the negative outputs of every activity in society. Um, that's clearly going to be an immense a task. Um, it could be done rough in a rough and ready way, uh, but it wouldn't solve any problem. The better way to go about this is uh, to introduce regulations and and or taxes which force the decision makers to internalize that cost and in the process more or less eliminate uh, the negative externality so that's the first best policy and if you pursue that policy ruthlessly and rigorously a very large number of negative externalities can be emitted uh, can be eliminated I'm very pleased today to introduce Martin Wolf. Martin is an associate editor and chief economics commentator at the Financial Times. He's a distinguished and highly respected financial and economic journalist and commentator, covering a very wide range of economic, financial and other topics. And he has recently been a strong voice on the importance of dealing with climate change. Martin's most recent publications are Why Globalization Works and The Shifts and the Shocks, What We've Learned and Have Still to Learn from the Financial Crisis published in 2015. Thank you very much, Martin, for taking the time today to speak to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. It's a pleasure. And I'm, I'm very much looking forward to talking to you about sustainability and about uh, the role of uh, sustainability uh, in economics and our, our, current, our current economic system and how well it works, do you think, when it comes to, to, to issues around sustainable development and issues around sustainability more generally? Um, and I guess that's a, a pretty good place to start. Uh, uh, to what extent do you think that the contemporary uh, economic models uh, deals with sustainability issues? D- does it do a good job? Or to what extent do, do, does sustainability and ideas of, of uh, e- ecology and environment, uh, you know, uh, be included in, in, the, in, in the model? Well, I should say, first of all, that I don't regard myself as an expert in uh, um, all the work being done by economists and others in the areas of including um, resources broadly defined, um, above all natural resources, in economic models. So uh, there's a, I know a tremendous amount of work in this area, and since I cover so much, um, given by the nature of my job, I can't possibly claim to be up with all of it. I think it would be fair to say, and I've written about this in the past, um, that uh, in the shift from, if you like, 19th century economics to 20th century economics, something very remarkable happened, quite surprising in a way, though I understand why it happened, um, which is that land, which was the economist's shorthand for all resources as a factory of economic production disappeared from the models um, in moving from classical economics to neoclassical economics, which is the, com- the contemporary frame 
for um, most economic analysis. Um, it's a sort of the orthodox starting point. Land dropped out of the analysis and it came to be assumed that the right way of thinking about the world is one of essentially constant returns to scale with the only relevant factors of production being capital and labor uh, and ideas, technical progress. And land disappeared uh, altogether. And I think the, the main reason for that was that in analyzing uh, the growth of economies, um, it uh, didn't appear that diminishing returns were very important. And it appeared that capital in the modern industrial sector was the, the dominant driver of capital and ideas. So since all economics, indeed all science, rests on simplifying models, you have to simplify to get any understanding of very complex phenomena. This was essentially dropped out of economics. And that then was reinforced in the 30s and 40s when modern national accounting was developed. Uh, and it's worth remembering it was developed essentially um, for war, for in, in order to facilitate the mobilization of resources in the Great War of, sec of the Second World War. And it was an attempt to work out what resources were at the disposable, disposal of governments in order to fight this war. And what was relevant there, again, was what could be produced uh, and used out of production. So for these reasons, um, fundamental reasons, resources, including everything to do with the environment, disappeared from the economic models and they disappeared from national accounts. Now, there have been attempts to put them back in since since then, uh, but in um, it is fair to say that in standard um, accounting frameworks that we still use, GDP, and in standard growth models, these uh, are still largely ignored. Um, partly because they're very difficult to measure in, with any degree of precision, they're very difficult to value. There are lots of other things that are also ignored from GDP. All household work is ignored, for example. Uh, so lots of things are ignored. Um, but these are very, very important areas. And people, I think, are just not quite clear how, how to put them into the accounting. And in the models, equally, they're really very difficult to uh, put in because once you start engaging with many, many factors of production, working out what's going on becomes really very complicated. So the result is um, that these things have been ignored. And finally, I think one has to allow for the fact that by and large economists until relatively recently, last 10 years, 15 years at most, few 20 years, have just not thought these were very important factors. One could treat the economy as if it was a, uh, a subsystem of the global entire global system, which didn't really interact with the rest of the world very much. And um, we now realize that isn't right, but it's difficult to know exactly what to do about it. Right, right. right. That's very interesting. Um, because as you mentioned, the some of the factors that aren't included are very important from a uh, sustainability perspective in terms of the natural capital, uh, I guess social capital as well, uh, and degradation of the environment and pollution. So I was wondering to what extent does it does it matter or how does that play out? Because you see every day, you know, people really, the economies release figures on GDP figures and GDP growth and it's quite closely watched and it's an important variable. And, and, and I know in business they talk about what you measure and the impact that, you know, what you measure that you control or, you know, the, the impact that that has. Um, I don't know whether you have any thoughts on that. Um, it's, there are so many different areas here. Um, there are sort of simple, trivial answers, and then there are really deep, uh, deep um, uh, problems. Uh, I mean, for quite a lot of uh, environmental effects, which you can regard as local, and in some sense, internalizable. Economists tend to talk about externalities and, and the, uh, the obverse of an externality is sort of, I think a word that's almost never used, an internality. So, um, but economists tend to say, well, you can externalize, you can internalize externalities. So uh, to, to give you an example, fairly classic sort of example, you have uh, a factory which is belching out smoke the smoke is an output of the factory of negative value. Clearly, it does people damage, uh, and therefore the true output of this factory 
is whatever um, product it produces and the value people put on that minus the cost of the smoke that it's emitting to the, to the atmosphere, to people, and to other things one might care about. Uh, life, wildlife, for example. Um, so one way of doing, thinking about this will be to say, well, we should compute the negative outputs of every activity in society. Um, that's clearly going to be an immense uh, task. Um, it could be done rough in a rough and ready way, uh, but it wouldn't solve any problem. The better way to go about this is uh, to introduce regulations and and or taxes, which force the decision makers to internalise that cost and, in the process, more or less eliminate. Uh, the negative externality. So that's the first best policy. And if you pursue that policy ruthlessly and rigorously, a very large number of negative externalities can be emitted, uh, can be eliminated. So um, certainly in terms of uh, local pollution, if you like, um, uh, the quality of water, the quality of rivers, the quality of the atmosphere. In most advanced countries, in fact, all advanced countries, these have massively improved in the course of my own lifetime. I'm nearly 70, so I've seen it. Uh, I live in London, and London, from an environmental point of view, is immensely better than it was, despite all the car fumes, than it was when I was a child. Now, um, so the best thing to do is to deal with that. If you deal with that effectively, then a lot of the negative externalities that you'd want to measure disappear. Not all of them uh, by any means, but a lot of them will disappear. The big things, I think, uh, that leaves two, at least two huge things which are admitted. The first tend to be the global externalities, of which in the climate is surely the most important. I tend to think that the other one, not I don't think, obviously the other one is the oceans. These are, these are uh, the atmosphere and the oceans are unowned natural resources um, and they're used as free dumping sites uh, uh, by humanity um, and therefore those effects are ignored in uh, our um, our accounts uh, completely, and we have not succeeded in internalizing these externalities. The first best policy is still clearly to do that. Uh, um, uh, and if we did do that well and effectively, then the problem of, uh, of having failed to measure things correctly would at least diminish. The second big one you mentioned is the consumption of natural resources. Um, this is in the production process itself, directly in the production process. Um, you could argue that, that um, um, CO2 emissions are a sort of example of that, but I'm going to put that to one side. I'm thinking more of things like um, oil, coal, um, trees, and all the rest of it. Um, now, some of the 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 right way here i think it is actually relatively easy to see what the accounting uh um process should be what it would look like you would actually have to distinguish between the resource costs of actually getting the exploring finding extracting this stuff uh that's measured in gdp anyway and should be that's I think, in a, at least conceptually, relatively straightforward. Um, but you have to distinguish that from the finite natural resource itself, the natural capital itself. And that should not be part of GDP. It should be seen as an asset transaction. Now, for most economies, this is not a hugely important issue because what you might call natural resource rents are onto, of that kind are not an enormous part of the output of those economies. But there are quite a number of economies, uh, all the oil producing countries, Norway, uh, other natural resource providing producing countries, which are essentially extracting a finite resource. Uh, the GDP is clearly hugely overestimated for these countries, because a large part of that GDP is just simply taking 
uh, a scarce resource out of the out of the ground, and if they don't replace it with some other form of capital uh, on which they can live after the resource disappears, it will turn out the GDP is in a very clear and straightforward sense unsustainable. It will cease to last, and the right way to do that, in my view. And the Norwegians are closest to this. They they do this in a relatively sensible way in practice. Is to treat the value of the natural resource itself as it comes out of the ground as uh, a form of capital, uh, uh, and that part of the output should not be part, seen as part of GDP uh, at all. And that's generally true of any part of GDP which is unsustainable in the sense that it it cannot continue indefinitely. You're running down a natural resource. There's an argument that a quite a big part of Chinese GDP has had that characteristic. We properly measured the consumption of natural resources in China. GDP growth will be considerably smaller than it showed. Than it showed. And here, I think conceptually, what you need to do is relatively clear. It's it's been in practice not done, and I've been a bit surprised by that. Right. right. That's interesting. So, uh, rainforests, um, uh, water uh, resources, things like that—they would—they would, they would uh, be included in, in what you're talking about there, from the, the more of a balance sheet approach. Rainforests certainly, uh, because they clearly aren't uh, reproducible. Um, finite water resources, aquifers, for example, I think relatively straightforward. Uh, um, some water resources are renewable in the sense, you know, that pretty obviously uh, uh, rivers uh, are replenished. Using up the water at a faster rate than it is replenished uh, um, would have to be regarded as, uh, as you indicate, as a form of capital decumulation. Um, this is generally, I mean, this is obviously the point, it's just a, it's a, it's a variant, not such an extreme variant as an absolutely finite resource. Uh, it's not an absolutely finite resource since the, the water system at the global level is obviously recycled at all, is consistently recycled. But of course, you can end up using water faster than it is replenished. And that should, of course, be allowed for. And then in some parts of the world, it's obvious that that is indeed what is happening. Right. right. That's very interesting. Um, I'm just wondering about um, what impact do you think the, the, the state of development of these ideas has on uh, COP21 and the Sustainable Development Goals? To what extent do you think that does it matter uh, that these um, measures are not not fully implemented, uh, and some are more conceptual than others. Um, and I'm just wondering uh, what what you think w would need to happen uh, to to you know facilitate, I suppose, uh, this move to a more a more sustainable uh, e economy and the goals that these different uh, agreements uh, have set out. I think one of the big questions which I've already touched upon with my discussion of in internalizing externalities vis-a-vis -vis getting the GDP accounts perfect, um, that I'm, I'm fully prepared to, this is symptomatic, I'm fully prepared to accept that if we had better accounting mechanisms, we would better understand what we are doing uh, to the environment and above all we would understand better the extent to which uh, our standard of living is sustainable. Um, uh, the, uh, but making as it were the GDP accounts um, in this sense more fully comprehensive so they include everything that bears on human welfare which is in theory what we're trying, we might be trying to do. Some might even argue we should go beyond human welfare, but let's leave that for the moment. Um, those will be, that will be an improvement, but it should be understood that once, while we, when we do that, we would end up in huge number of very, very complicated and difficult valuation questions, which we could probably get bogged down with for, for many, many years uh, without producing accounts everybody's very happy with. And that's, I think, one of the reasons, at least one, there are other reasons why we haven't moved um, in any systematic, globally agreed way to environmental accounts, environmentally inclusive accounts. 
So my, I have a little bit of a view. I don't want to push this too far. That that going for the um, the perfect accounting of everything is a little bit of a snare of, and a delusion in the sense that we could end up pursuing that particular uh, snark, that particular snark for a very, very long time without improving actual decision making. So the way I like to think about these systems we're trying to deal with, these challenges we're trying to deal with, is that we should treat the global externalities the way we have treated local externalities, which I've already discussed. It's obviously much more complicated to deal with global externalities, uh, particularly global externalities which operate over an immense long time period like climate. So these are the most, in, in orders of magnitude, the most complex externalities we will ever have to deal with. But the, I think the core thing here to do is not to spend immense amounts of time and effort worrying about uh, uh, measurement, um, but uh, working out a system to internalize externalities, i.e. to get rid of the problem so far as we can by eliminating the uh, the, great, the CO2 emissions. Um, uh, and uh, that's the challenge. That is the challenge that we have. Um, now, my view is that the right way of doing that, obviously, is through uh, international agreements, which proceed to internalize externalities and to, to develop technologies and progress and further development technologies, which will allow us to eliminate CO2 emissions or bring them back into balance with the absorptive capacity of the global system, the biosphere. Um, uh, that's clearly uh, the, the, the actual challenge, and we measured things perfectly or not wouldn't solve the problem. Um, uh, the, uh, I would say COP21 is the right way to go in principle, but it actually hasn't made enough of a difference. It's the right way to go in principle because it's global, and it, the, the solution has to be global. It requires everybody to do their part, every government. It requires government action because this is uh, uh, um, something that is external to the market. It, it requires a uh, government actions and those governments have to coordinate and cooperate. Uh, the problem obviously is that because it's such a huge global problem, because we haven't yet agreed on the technical means and the technical and organizational means of solving it. Um, uh, the agreements we've reached so far, and I think COP21 falls into that category, are not adequate to deal with the problem. Uh, so uh, the danger is that people will think COP21 was, as it were, uh, the end instead of being at the most the end of the beginning. Uh, my own view in my evaluation of COP21 is that it was a fairly pragmatic way of dealing with the challenges in front of us, given that the first best mechanisms were not available, which would have been a global carbon price uh, and, a and a path for the global carbon price. Um, uh, since those first bests were not available, this was a reasonable second best, but it's not going to be enough. And it's clear that climate is becoming increasingly destabilized. And I am concerned that the result will be a global failure. Um, but I think it's the right way to go, and it's the right priority. Meantime, I think the the science and technology, the science and economics approach has to be to look at what's happening at the climate system itself, rather than incorporating the whole of national accounts, working out what the costs are, uh, and working out um, what... Uh, what the best policy instruments are for dealing with it and and dealing with it in a special specialized uh, global framework of this kind I believe very strongly that the best way to do global governance since we're not going to have a global government is to have a series of very specific targeted well organized uh, treaty but treaty frameworks which bind governments in particular areas, as we did with the Montreal Protocol. That seems to me to be the way to make this work. So I think that the COP21 is, uh, is a step, but a small step in, broadly speaking, the right direction. Right. right. That's very interesting. And you mentioned the carbon tax there. Um, do you have thoughts on, on, on that? I mean, some people were disappointed that, that there wasn't more uh, about that in, in COP21. Others were... Uh, 
pursuing a more pragmatic line, saying that that wasn't that would have been too much to expect. Well, uh, um, the the decision in the end was made that for practical reasons it was impossible to agree a global framework, either um, uh, cap and trade or taxes. Uh, 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 now, I'm, this is for pragmatic reasons, which we could discuss if you like. I'm pretty strongly on the tax side rather than cap and trade, but if you could make cap and trade work, I wouldn't have any problem with it. I mean, it's not a, it's, this is a, just a matter of pragmatism. The objectives are essentially the same. The problem was that it, that after what is it, uh, twenty four years after or twenty three years after Kyoto, it became pretty obvious that we were not going to the world was not going to agree a, a tax or cap and trade system. Um, uh, there are a whole host of reasons for this, which all ultimately come down to the fact that all global decisions are made by two hundred governments. The governments all have different interests. They have they respond to different constituents. They're suspicious of one another. Uh, some of them deny the uh, deny the science altogether. Um, so, uh, getting a global agreement, which is obviously the, which is what we would have if we had a global government. We, clearly, we would have a carbon price, and that would be the optimal outcome. It's not feasible. So, the decision was made that we should instead have national plans, uh, nationally decided plans, and each would commit themselves to certain uh, targets in terms of CO2 emissions. Each would seek it in their own way um, within that framework, and the idea is that those targets will be progressively tightened. We already know that the targets they committed themselves to, if you add them up, are not sufficient to bring uh, to stop the t uh, global temperature rising from the pre-industrial level by more than two degrees. I've been told that, that it would grow, even if they delivered their targets, which is very implausible, it would be at least a three and a half degree rise. So the schemes, are, the plans are clearly inadequate, grossly inadequate. There's no doubt about that. Uh, but the idea was, well, let's start with that. Let's see how they can do with that. Let's tighten it up and maybe... As these things develop, each individual country will start developing a pricing system because uh, it's one of the ways to do it for them. And then they will see, well, look, we're paying a higher price than somebody next door. There's a possibility of trading our allowances. And then we start moving in that way towards a global system by locking together national plans. Will that happen? I have no idea. But so as I come, as I said already before, COP21 seems to me clearly, as it were, like the famous remark by Winston Churchill about democracy, it's the worst possible solution except all the others uh, that we couldn't actually agree on. So um, we couldn't agree on the others, so this, this is the, the least bad solution uh, available. But it's clearly very, very imperfect arrangement for dealing with this problem. Right, that's very interesting. Uh, I'm just wondering whether one more question, which is probably uh, uh, one one we could talk about for, for many hours as well. And I, it's, it's to do with the importance of growth in an economic system. And I think some people have uh, said that the idea of sustainable development is, a, is an oxymoron and that growth is the problem. Um, what would economic, how, how important is growth to, to economics and, and, and can one envisage an economic system that wasn't based on growth in the way it is today? I think that's a very profound question. Um, well, first of all, it's obviously possible to imagine an economic system that doesn't include growth. Um, to all intents and purposes, uh, this is a slight exaggeration, but between, um, let's say, the time of the agricultural revolution, let's say about 10,000 years ago, and about 1800, uh, the world economy grew only with population. Uh, real incomes per head, this, is, this isn't quite right. There certainly were improvements. But broadly speaking, the vast majority of people lived on the subsistence level. Um, and, they, and real GDP per head which is, I think, really what we mean by growth, 
not just increasing the absolute size of the economy because there are more people, though that's part of it, but basically rising uh, GDP per head didn't exist. So it's perfectly possible to have economic systems that don't generate growth. We've been there, done that uh, for thousands of years. One might even say even further back, hundreds of 100,000 years. Um, so of course we can. Uh, part, that's point one. Point two, um, a, we have discovered that uh, um, if you have an economic system which is based on initiative by individuals and uh, organizations like companies um, to innovate and uh, develop new products, develop more efficient ways of producing old products and offering them to customers, uh, the businesses and entities that do that tend to outcompete the ones that don't, and that generates growth. I mean, that's how it happens. Uh, and of course, in the, one of the ways it, the innovation occurs is in the use of natural resources, uh, fossil fuels. We've already talked about that. But the uh, uh, to have an economic system that doesn't generate growth at all, you would have to stop. Um, in essence, you'd have to stop the competitive process. And that's a pretty radical thing to do. I personally would oppose it because it seems to me to, uh, to suppress something very valuable about human beings, their creativity uh, and their willingness and desire to compete with one another because I think we, among other things, we are competitive. And uh, the ability to develop and produce new products which we enjoy using is actually rather a good thing. So, but the point I'm making is a broader one, whether you agree with that or not. Um, preventing growth is not some trivial thing. It involves uh, transforming the whole nature of our economic system back to something more like a feudal system, uh, back towards something much more hierarchically controlled, anti-competitive and anti-individualistic, in my view. It's, it's a really very profound value shift. You shouldn't think of growth as some horrible thing that comes from out there, which, if only we were nice people, we could stop. Growth is a byproduct, uh, intimately connected to the individualistic and rationalistic post-enlightenment world. And for those of us like me, who are very much enlightenment people, uh, giving that up, giving those core values up uh, in order to get rid of growth will be unbelievably unpleasant. And, and, I, would, and I would oppose it. Um, so, uh, and then the third reason I would suggest why, even if you don't accept the second rather deep point, um, don't accept the values, is... Well, actually, there are lots and lots and lots of people in the world for whom growth in the sense that we, that we mean it would actually transform lives. Yes, yes. So, of course, look, I'm a very well-off person. If my income doesn't go up again anymore, I don't care. Uh, and it's probably true for at least many in the advanced world, though not all by any means, uh, uh, um, that... Uh, they're reasonably comfortably off, and with the proper organizing organization of our societies, we could ensure a reasonable standard of living for everybody, even if we didn't grow anymore. But that's clearly not true for the bulk of humanity. Ma roughly, maybe 40% of humanity lives at or near subsistence, not at, actually at subsistence, um, sort, of, sort of what is, the World Bank estimates at $2 a day in in GDP per head at purchasing power parity or thereabouts, but it's pretty close to subsistence. What does that mean? Often they don't feed themselves well, uh, their children are malnourished, they don't have access to decent medical care, their life expectancies are shorter, their children die uh, in infancy, um, they have limited means of entertainment, their, their communications are inadequate, they can't travel and enjoy the pleasures of travel, uh, all the things that we in the developed world take for granted. Now, it seems to me 
that certainly we in the development world, I certainly feel, I cannot possibly tell these people, well, that was fine. We had this growth. We're, we're pretty well off. But you, you, you people, you can't really share this at all. I'm afraid there are too many of you and you really just have to disappear or starve or just remain poor forever. That's simply not on. That seems to me obviously an, an argument you couldn't possibly make. So if you were to stop growth and to try to stop growth, you would then, and this gets to the fourth point, you'd have to say, well, since people can't get better off in aggregate, we're going to have to redistribute it. We can't have a, a world economy in which uh, some economies like UK or US or Ireland are maybe 20, 30 times as rich as other economies on a per capita basis. That can't be sustainable. That really is unfair. We would have to distribute in a static world resources and standard of living more evenly. And I, I tend to play a little game by this. The global average real income per head is about, I haven't done the most recent numbers, but it's about $8,000 a head measured at purchasing power parity. Just to give you a... A, a, a relative measure in the US it's about 45,000 in the UK it's a little under 40 maybe 37 38 so we're about five or six times the world average so if we were going to be reduced to the world average in order that all the countries that are much poorer in the world average could be brought up to it say in Africa we would have to transfer our surplus we would have to give up about 80% of our standard of living uh, and transfer it to the rest of the world, leaving aside the organizational of that, uh, the transfer problem, as economists call it. There is just no way on earth that could be done without uh, the most extreme form of Stalinist tyranny. It's inconceivable that you could operate a no-growth world with a reasonable degree of equality without, uh, without a degree of tyranny, which is itself, to my mind, Ultimate, ultimately unacceptable. Um, uh, so this no-growth world is a pretty difficult thing to arrange. Um, and then I would add the final point, which is sort of the Benjamin Friedman point. Benjamin Friedman is a professor at Harvard who's written a book on the moral virtues of growth. And this is where I'd come back to the, external, the internalizing externalities point, the way of trying to make growth work compatible with the environment. That's my view. But his basic point, and I've, I've repeated this, is if you live in a society where standards of living on average are rising, of course, you need to shape it so it is sustainable, so it doesn't destroy the environment. And we can have a big debate about whether that's possible. Um, but he's basically saying the, the nice thing about a society like that is that it's positive sum. That is to say, you can make everybody better off and you should be trying to make everybody better off. And in a society in which everybody is getting better off, it becomes relatively easy to solve uh, uh, distributional problems and is relatively easy to persuade people to be optimistic about the future. And indeed, one of the big problems in our developed world right now, it seems to me, is that we've stopped growing. We are actually close to zero growth societies. And one of the consequences, in my view, of being in a closely close to zero growth societies is somebody like Donald Trump. He's a reflection of the political misery of income stagnation or decline. So do not ignore the extent to which our relatively peaceful, relatively harmonious democratic societies, which have only existed for about a century or so in much of the, where they do exist, are themselves a byproduct of the growth miracle. So what I'm saying, I understand the, the concern. It's a perfectly legitimate concern about whether we can uh, increase the standard of living of the human population um, while respecting natural constraints. I think that's a very profound question. But the, 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 the value questions, the political questions uh, that are raised uh, uh, and the sort of social organization questions that are raised by trying to move to a zero growth economy worldwide, which is what it would have to be, not just in our countries, these are in my view, incredibly huge and frightening challenges. Well, it's interesting. You covered a lot of ground there. And clearly, you know, talking about income growth or stagnation you know, in the last 20 or 30 years, clearly the global economy has not delivered for uh, whole sections of uh, communities, as you mentioned, and given rise to uh, populism. And I suppose the other side of the coin is the fact that, you know, the, 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 the levels of consumption of resources in America, for example, 
uh, and the developed world compared to the developing world is what worries some people to the extent that they feel that this is not sustainable and, and will ultimately lead to a world in which you know the poorer will bear the consequences the, the people in developing countries the people in parts of the world that are going to suffer the the, the most uh, egregious or terrible uh, consequences of global warming so um you know the, the idea of a no growth model is one thing but weaning the ourselves off growth which i guess is part of the the idea that i was exploring there is is certainly an interesting one and i suppose you know the some of these arguments are theoretical as well you know the, the moral virtue of growth but at a certain point you do have to look at what's happening on the ground and 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 say to what extent is that uh, a model that's not actually uh, you know actually working or a model that 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 is actually flawed i think there are two ways of thinking about or three ways of thinking about the first way would be uh, um, you know, the, the, the ultimate pessimistic view is that sort of Malthus was right but for the wrong reasons um, that is to say uh, he thought it was impossible to have uh, consistent rises in standards of living because his investigation of nature indicated to him that whenever there was abundance, uh, um, procreation of the relevant species, um, sets of species, would uh, 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 increase, survival would increase, populations would increase, and ultimately this would lead to population collapses through famine and death. Uh, and he argued that essentially the same would happen to human beings because as we got richer, we would have more children. Um, and this didn't happen, as we now know. Uh, and instead, over 200 years, extraordinary, unprecedented and really unimaginable rises in standards of living. And however you care to mention, measure them, there isn't any real doubt about that, have occurred. Um, but uh, so instead of the collapse occurring through population, the collapse can occur through, as you already indicated, unsustainable resource use. And in the end, the collapse will occur through, you know, uh, possibly in the end, um, huge um, um, uh, weather-related catastrophes uh, of uh, some kind, and the economic system would will founder. Now, um, my own impression uh, of the evidence on this is that that isn't likely to be the case, but it's clearly possible. Uh, it's clearly uh, at least possible that we are going into collapse mode. Um, uh, and therefore the, the system isn't sustainable, and that's the end of it. And if it's not sustainable, it won't uh, be sustained. A second point of view would be that actually human beings are extraordinarily adaptable and we have uh, achieved uh, an extraordinary progress in our scientific and technological understanding. There isn't any doubt, much doubt about that compared with 300 years ago. And that we will be able to <coughs> find ways, some of them possibly quite unpleasant, of adjusting and coping with these natural uh, challenges that we will confront over the next century, including climate. And we will go on. We might have to move a lot, but we will go on. That's, uh, that's sort of the, is it sustainable or not, um, uh, um, uh, question. So that's one sort of possible way of thinking, you know, it's all going to end very badly or not. I don't know. Since I'm not, uh, I don't think anybody knows, but I don't know whether we can avoid this uh, Malthusian trap. Now, the second point uh, is, which you already stressed, it is clearly true that the developed countries that got there first um, uh, have used uh, a disproportionate share of the world's resources and are continuing to use a disproportionate share of the world's resources on an annual basis. And whether that's sustainable, you can certainly argue it isn't just. Uh, and indeed, many most people in developing countries do argue it isn't just. They say, why should we, for example, stop our emissions when, when you were as well as poor as we were, you were increasing your emissions 
in a crazy way and taking no account of the consequences. You eliminate your excess emissions and we'll go on doing what we want. Uh, and the answer to that is, uh, my answer to that, is whatever you feel about the morality of that, it isn't going to happen for the reasons I've already outlined. And even if the developed countries did, in fact, reduce significantly their emissions, say, um, um, that's not going to solve the problem because all the growth in emissions now is from developing and emerging countries. So they're going to have to be... Uh, uh, they're going to have to be part of this. So the, the argument from justice doesn't get you very far in dealing with a pragmatic uh, problem. I've already indicated to you, which is sort of my third point, that I don't think it is a conceivable policy for any democratically elected government, or indeed even any tyranny that I can imagine, that we're going to say to the people of the developed world, well, I'm sorry, it's not a, you don't have a sustainable life pattern. And as of now, your level of consumption is going to be cut by 70 or 80%. Um, uh, this government wouldn't last a minute. So I, I'm, I'm basically a pragmatic human being. I don't, I'm perfectly prepared to accept that this, and I've already discussed this already, might not turn out to be sustainable, but you have to do what you can. And doing what you can't uh, doesn't strike me, has never struck me as a very sensible way to proceed. So I'm with those people. I know deeply that, that the people like me are uh, regarded with vast suspicion. Um, but people like me include people like uh, Nick Stern, for example, who's obviously probably the world's leading economist looking at these issues, um, uh, Nordhaus in Yale and so forth, which basically says we get, we're not going to be able to eliminate growth and we're not going to be able to in the entire, um, everything that has been achieved since the Enlightenment, it's just not going to happen. What we are going to have to do is to do, as I've already said before, do for global externalities what we've successfully done for local ones. Of course, it's much more difficult. The challenges are enormous. But if we, instead of wasting our resources, as we've done, really focused our scientific resources and technological resources on renewable energy in a really, you know, Manhattan Project style way. Uh, if we, uh, if we um, uh, really worked hard to create a, a treaty bound system with teeth, which gave incentives to scientists and businesses and technologists to transform the resource using aspects of our system. If we transform the way our cities are configured, the, how transport systems work and all the rest of it, particularly the new cities coming along, we could over the next half century uh, move perhaps more soon quickly to a zero carbon emitting world. And without sacrificing all prospects for higher standards of living properly measured. And in practice, that's the only conceivable way to go. The only way, in my view, that we can solve the problems created by human ingenuity, human genius really, human technology, is by relying on more human ingenuity and more human genius. The idea, in my judgment, that we can solve this problem by going back to, as it were, our version of the Garden of Eden, uh, because that's what this is about, I giving up all the products of our ingenuity and effort. It seems to me sort of it's a constant theme of human history, wanting to go back to such a golden age, but it never was very golden for most humanity, and we can't go back. Uh, that seems to me the core of what the Genesis story is telling us. Uh, we are curious we are innovative and we're going to have to innovate our way out of this. And if we can't innovate our way out of this, in practice, in my view, there will be no solution. I understand many people find this view uh, that I have advanced despicable, uh, immoral, maybe even amoral. But to me, it's the only moral thing to do is something that can work. And we have to make, uh, we have to do something that can work by using the the uh, the the abilities of humanity um, to, in a better direction. They are huge questions. You asked obviously the most profound questions, and at least if you're interested in economics, social science, and the future of humanity. Right. right.
uh, a very uh, powerfully articulated credo. Are you optimistic, Martin, finally? <laughs> uh, I find it temperamentally very difficult to be optimistic. Uh, my natural tendency is to be pessimistic. Uh, um, uh, and, and that's probably partly because of my personal background. My parents were both refugees from Europe during the Hitler period. Uh, all their families were exterminated. So I have this sort of, to be honest, some sort of dark shadow. Things can go unbelievably wrong. Uh, and so I, 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 I have that uh, pessimism. And I also like to say one of the nice things about being a pessimist is that for, in my life, I've had so many pleasant surprises. Uh, I, I'm rarely disappointed uh, because I hadn't expected much. And I'm, but I'm often pleased because I hadn't expected things to go well. So there have been quite a lot of things that have happened to the world in my lifetime, which I regard with great pleasure. Uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union was one, the successful development of so many uh, developing countries. What you say about how many of the world's poor are not benefiting is correct, but it is also true uh, that there are parts of the world that I know moderately well. India is an example where there is still immense, colossal poverty, but there's no doubt if you go around India that it's, people are much better off than they were 40 or 50 years ago. So things have uh, progressed. And finally, despite my natural pessimism, um, I do feel that um, humanity has, as I've already said, despite all its immense flaws, its tribalism, its natural short-sightedness, its tendency towards hatred uh, and hostility. It also has immense qualities of which the most important are this ability um, to invent, innovate, and above all the curiosity which allows us to try and understand the world. And our advances in that respect seem to me so extraordinary and so, and so heartwarming. And um, they bring with them all increases in understanding, increases in our powers over the natural world, bring with them a tremendous challenges and dangers. But they also bring with them the opportunities to learn and to do better. And so I suppose I am optimistic fundamentally that at least we can and possibly that we will find those solutions. In any case, as I've already indicated, I don't think we can reject who we are. Uh, we are who we are. And we are going to solve the problems we create only by using the attributes we have used to create them. Well, that's, well, that's fascinating, fascinating to, to, to talk to you, talk Martin, to and to hear your views. Uh, it's been very stimulating. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to the sustainability agenda today. That's certainly a very long 25 minutes. <laughs> thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. Please sign up at the sustainabilityagenda.com website or on iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.